welcome to Visionaries, a podcast that demonstrates that you do not need perfect eyesight in order to be a visionary. I am your humble correspondent and host, John Steinberg, joined alongside by my co-host, Santino Maoni, back for another great episode of Visionaries. We have a lot of great topics lined up for you guys today. John, take it away. All right. Well, we like to begin each program with some wisdom, some words to live by. So this week's quote is taken from a speech delivered by Annie Sullivan. For those that don't know, she is the woman, the titular miracle worker in the Oscar-winning film adaptation of the story that revolves around her teaching Helen Keller. She is the miracle worker who was able to effectively teach Helen Keller how to speak and communicate and lead a long and productive life. So, quoting from Annie Sullivan, everything has its wonders, even darkness and silence. So, Santino, when you hear something like that, what, what comes to mind? How, what do you think she was driving at? Or how could that be maybe applied to those of us in the real world looking for grand inspiration? Yeah, when you hear everything has its wonders, even darkness and silence, um, kind of what that sparks in me when I think, and I'm, I'm going to be kind of coming at it from a blind, like a like perspective with blind people. I think that when I hear that from an outsider perspective, it makes me think about, you know, again, how we talked about, you know, shows in the past on other episodes in the dark and how that title kind of represents how blind people may feel. Yeah, that's right. I think, that's right. Darkness has been mentioned in our first two episodes. Yeah, in the first two episodes. And now it's mentioned here again in our third episode. And we see, again, everything has its wonders, even darkness and silence. And I think when she when it's she's saying even darkness, she's referring to blindness. And then when she's talking about um, silence, she's referring to people that are that are deaf and that are unable to hear. And I think that she's kind of saying that despite having those impairments and despite not being able to see, despite not being able to hear, everything still has its wonders. That almost is referring to the fact that every everything that you do in life, you can still achieve things. It's almost like almost, I'm again, I'm kind of bringing it back to like a motivational standpoint, but I feel like that's where, what that quote kind of can, can be interpreted as is just, again, her saying that despite not being able to see again, despite not being able to hear, it doesn't mean that you can achieve any less than anybody else in the world can, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're talking about a woman who worked with Helen Keller who's from Alabama and whose parents uh, fought on the wrong side of the Civil War. They had money, they had means. And when they had a child, Helen Keller, they didn't know what to do with her at all, at all, at all. And if not for people like Annie Sullivan uh, and those that founded the Perkins School where she taught and studied herself, these individuals, they would just kind of wind up in poor houses, yeah. to be honest. Uh, so maximizing what you have, hitting the real over in terms of betting, the real, if we're talking over and under, you are tapping out at the over in what you're bringing to the table, what you're able to achieve in life. So even someone like Helen Keller, who cannot formally speak, she can't see, she can't hear, even a woman like that has a great deal to offer the rest of the world. Definitely, yeah. And the thing was, 
I was reading the other day, Helen, before um, her parents found Annie Sullivan, she was unable to communicate, like you said, in any way at all. And then Annie Sullivan kind of taught Helen Keller how to communicate with fingerspelling, mm-hmm. which, and you know, like she was, she would run water over Helen's hands and start writing water on her hand. And that's kind of how um, Helen started making connections. And she like, she, she, that's how, like when she almost got that new um, sense for life and she wanted to kind of start learning what everything was and through, through Annie Sullivan helping her communicate in that way, she again, kind of found that new zest for life. And, you know, almost just uh, obviously again, you know, she died in 1968, Helen Keller, but even this, you know, despite her passing her, I think what Annie Sullivan helped her do and how Annie Sullivan helped her, you know, be persistent, helped her work hard and allowed Helen Keller to really, show that determination to, despite again, like you said, not being able to see, not being able to hear, not being able to formally speak. And, you know, despite all of that, she overcame the hardest challenges in her life and still managed to live, I, I would say a great and productive life despite all those challenges, which is really the, the inspiration, I guess, behind that quote. Definitely, definitely. So again, Annie Sullivan, we thank you for your massive contributions to this particular discussion. So that takes us into our next segment, Handprints Hall of Fame, a segment designed around the iconic Grauman's Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, where stars of stage and screen laid their hands down in the dirt, enshrining them forever. And Santino, my man, you actually got to see these handprints as you went to the uh i believe it's called tcl now but yeah, Grauman's yeah. chinese theater tcl chinese theater i went last night to see the new batman movie i did actually get to see some of the stars and the handprints that were outside the theater um bat the batman was a great movie with robert pattinson highly recommend seeing it we'll get we'll get back on track here obviously for the segment but it was a great experience loved seeing the handprints that were outside the theater highly recommend even just going to that theater in general but john continue what you were saying yeah so this week we have to we have to hit some of the basics here. We have to address some of the eh, more obvious figures in the long life cycle of the visually impaired experience. Maybe none more important than one Lewis Braille himself. So uh, if we can picture it, he is bending down on Hollywood Boulevard. Don't get the wrong idea in front of Grauman's Chinese Theater, placing his palms in the dirt, cementing them forever. So Louis Braille, the creator of Braille, was born in 1809, so just after the French Revolution, about 20 miles east of Paris. And he, he was not born blind, but became uh, visually impaired as a result of an accident. You see, his father worked with leather, uh, making horse tack. So Louis Braille, at three years old, was playing in his father's shop, took a needle, uh, poked it through one of the uh, leather objects in the shop. And when you know it, the needle went through the leather, and uh, basically blinded him in one eye. And then the other eye lost its ability to, uh, to see not too long after that. So following this tragic accident, uh, Louis Braille found himself to be an adept pupil. And it wasn't common at the time for 
children with visual impairments to receive formal educations for obvious reasons. But thankfully, one of the first schools for the blind did exist in Paris at the time. So at the age of 10, Louis Braille was sent to, well, it used to be called the Royal Institute for the Blind. Now I believe it's called the National Institute for the Blind in Paris, where he learned a couple of things that already existed that were designed to help out those incapable of properly seeing. One of them being a method designed by, I'm going to butcher the guy's name, unfortunately. It is French. There's accent marks in strange places. I'm sorry. Uh, Valentine, H-A-U-Y. So Valentine had created a system whereby letters would be raised and you could sort of trace your fingers over them. However, this, as you might imagine, led to books that were about 85 pounds in total, uh, like thousands of pages for Mm -hmm. just one single book. Uh, Additionally, there was uh, some more work done by Charles Barbre, and it was this youngster, this 10-year-old, Louis Braille, who put what had already been set out before him by his forebears into practice, changing it so that it was a workable system for not only him, but millions of people that were to follow. Mm -hmm. He actually came up with Braille, finished this creation of the Braille alphabet at the age of 14, (laughs) which is really sort of difficult to wrap your head around. Remarkable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable for a kid that young to be able to do, especially with the obstacles that he had to face that young to be able to accomplish something like that. But yeah, continue with what you were saying, but. And then he was a cellist, uh, a musician. A a pianist too, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he actually implemented a system whereby aspiring musicians could read music notes. So if it weren't enough to create full scale, an alphabet, in a system by which the visually impaired could communicate, he also went a step further in creating this whole system whereby aspiring musicians could also trot out their skills. Uh, about as impressive a contribution to the visually impaired community as anyone has ever made. Now, unfortunately, as is so often the case in life, it took longer than the amount of time that Lewis Braille had on the earth for the masses to really embrace his system. He died at the age of 43, but having led an extremely, well, I'll say truncated, but extremely productive existence. Definitely. We'll move on to our next segment, Profiles in Courage, where, John, who are you going to be interviewing today? Well, let me see for a second. Let me just <laughs> dial up the bat phone. Let's bring him in. Let's get him on Skype. Let's get him on Zoom. But that's not necessary. He's actually sitting to my right. Yep. And his name is Santino Maoni. We're going to be talking to our wonderful co-host on the program today. And part of the reason that I wanted to interview Dear Santino was 
because he's 19 and at the precipice of what I believe is going to be a long, fruitful, illustrious career in broadcast journalism. And before that begins in earnest, we want to hear from the man. So Santino, let's just begin from kind of a broad perspective. Broadcast journalism, right? That's yeah. that mainly in sports, but yes, yeah, yeah. Sports. Uh-huh. So what was your eureka moment? Or what was that time in your life where you thought to yourself, you know, this is something I would actually like to do. I've watched enough ESPN, whatever, and I want to do that. Yeah, it was when I was in elementary school, it was, I was about, let's say like nine or 10 years old in elementary school. And I was watching, I believe it was the 2012 NBA Finals when the Miami Heat beat the Oklahoma City Thunder. And I was a huge LeBron fan growing up. So it was great to see that moment to finally see him win his first championship. That was like, and that, that was the moment where my sports interest kind of twofolded and it, and it, and it doubled almost to where I was just full. I was fully into sports by that point, whether it was football, basketball, baseball, all like I was just fully invested in it. And after the heat won the NBA finals, I was watching, um, I was watching ESPN and the first take came on when Skip Bayless was on the show with Stephen A. Smith before Skip eventually left, uh, uh, you know, a couple of years later, but I'm watching the show and they're kind of just going back and forth talking about the game and like whether, the, whether the thunder kind of, you know, who wanted it more. I remember the Mark Cuban was one of the guests, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks. And I, I remember exactly one of the um, quotes that, that they were, or one of the debates they were having was, you know, which team wanted it more. And I just loved the way that, you know, Mark Cuban, him not even being an analyst, he's an NBA owner, but he was going back and forth with Stephen A and Skip Bayless. And even Tim Legler was on the show too. He's a former NBA player, current NBA analyst. But um, it was just amazing to watch for me, at least in my head, you know, go, them going back and forth and literally just talking about sports. And it was, I, and I was like, wait, you can like do this, like for a job, like you can like, you, you can literally get paid to sit and like, you know what I mean? Like in research sports, talk about sports. That was kind of the moment watching first, that first take, honestly, it was like the first time I had seen it ever since then. I've watched pretty much every one of their episodes, whether, uh, you know, live or post post recorded. Stephen A, when Max Kellerman came on the show, I was watching it then, but that was the eureka moment there in 2012 when after the Heat won the finals, watching the first take episode after the series was over, that was kind of the moment from then on in, I was fully invested in this. Awesome, yeah. awesome. And so you took that initial interest in first take and your just love and admiration for sports, and you went out and figured out a way to get yourself into a situation where you could actually cover the Super Bowl. Yeah. So you're a student at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut yeah. mm -hmm. and you're from Long Island. Yeah. And we are sitting in an apartment in downtown Los Angeles. You are roughly 15 or so days off of covering the Super Bowl for Ability Media. Yeah. So Tell our audience a bit about that experience, uh, what your expectations were coming into it, yeah. some of the endeavors that uh, you found yourself getting into. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that whole experience and what it was like. Yeah, it was, 
the moment of my, it was the best moment of my life, the best week of my life. I had, I, I have to say, just because of all the experience I experiences I had, and I'll get kind of in, more into that after I say what my expectations were. But going into it, I really didn't know what to expect. I kind of knew that we'd like have great opportunities to interview people and just everything we'd be experiencing. I think I, I knew it was going to be a great experience, but I didn't know what to expect because it was almost like none of us really knew what was going to happen because it was really more just opportunities arose and we kind of just had to jump at it. And like, if, if somebody was available to interview, you just kind of go do it. It wasn't like, there was not a lot of pre-planning that went into it, which is kind of, I think what the world of sports is honestly, because, you know, we, we didn't know what teams were going to be in the game until about a week before we had, before we were going to be covering, like covering the Super Bowl at Radio Row during press week leading up to the game. So it was kind of, I don't want to say on the fly, but up until like the first day we were there, I really didn't know what to expect, which was kind of interesting going into it. Because I was like, all right, you know what? I have no expectations. I'm just going to do whatever I, whatever opportunity comes to me, I'm going to jump at it, take everything and anything I can and just, just run with it, if that makes sense. So we go into the first day. I'm here at Radio Row. I see all like all the um, like different different studios, the stages where all the show like shows that I've watched happen, like NFL Network. You see the SiriusXM stage, um, just just everything that I've watched, like uh, the FanDuel Sports. You see CBS in one corner, ESPN over there, just everything. And it was like I was like, you came like I watch like I watched this like and I now I'm now I'm here exp- uh, working working with all these people. It, it it was unbelievable. But probably some of the best moments of that week. Um, that I remember being getting to interview uh, Pat McAfee, who's the obviously the host of the Pat McAfee show right now, is a former punter for the Indianapolis Colts. He was probably the nicest, most humble, and just I don't even know what what other word to use to describe him. He was just the, the best person I interviewed all week because he took the time to actually speak with me outside of the interview. He remembered my name, like, because I had spoken to him twice before I interviewed him. He remembered my name when he got in the interview. He was very personable. That was the word I was looking for, personable. He was just, he was such a great guy. I really hope in the future I get a chance to, you know, meet him again, possibly interview him again about, you know, stuff like endeavors that he has going on later in his, later in his career. But yeah, just a great guy. Uh, You know, just Pat, thank you for that opportunity. It was amazing. Um, I, the, the more opportunities that I had again, like I'm like almost like stuttering over my words because talking about this and trying to recall and just talk about everything I did, it's almost like even again, even being two at two weeks removed from the experience, it's still so surreal in my head of like, wait, how did how did like I do this? Like how how did I even get here? And again, it's still in my head, just I'm still just dumbfounded and shocked that I had that opportunity and what that could lead to in the future. It's still such an, just an amazing thing for me to think about. Um, the, the other experience I had with the, with the Cincinnati Bengals, I got to interview pretty much all the players that were at their, uh, at the press day um, for their media availability. And it was, you know, Joe Burrow was there, Jamar Chase, T Higgins, Tyler Boyd, Mike Hilton, Joe Mixon, the head coach, like buddy there. And it was, I got to ask a question, literally every one of them. It's like, I'm almost like kind of fanboying in a way, but it's like, I was speaking to them and then they were like talking back to me. It was like in that moment, just like, I've made it. It was just, you know what, I'm here. Like, this is where I want it to be. And this is how you get your foot in the door of just being a journalist at first. And this is how how you said, you know, the the Eureka moment that I talked about earlier with first take, it's how you get to that point of wanting to be a Stephen A. Smith and getting to first take. This is where you start. And it was just incredible to be there, people I met, like George Kittle was there, Travis Kelsey, I interviewed Kurt Warner as well, Hall of Fame quarterback, greatest undrafted 
player of all time in the NFL. Justin Jefferson was there. All these current players that I love watching, they're, 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 they're like, you know, top of the class in the NFL. And I'm just sitting here talking with some of them, like meeting them like they're, and I'm, I'm like, how, you know what I mean? Like, how am I here? It was just unbelievable. Such a great experience, but yeah, just incredible. Thank you, Santino. Yeah, yes, like, yeah, so, was- a, a phenomenal um, recounting of, of that week and, and what happened. Um, for, for those of you that haven't ever been privy to what it's like during the Super Bowl uh, for the host city, um, I always thought of it kind of like Mardi Gras a bit, but then there's also um, some deep functionality to it. So you have the entire cross-section of sports and entertainment coming together in one place in one week there are everyone associated with those industries is basically on hand 100%, uh, yep. radio row um is it, it's a wild wild scene and 100%. santino experienced it in the best way possible i even interviewed your dad he was there yeah. too lee, lee was there i got to interview him i spoke to him for a little bit even michael buffer was there the, right the, the, because he for the Rams every home game he 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 does that where he does let's get ready to rumble I'm not gonna do it because obviously it's you know monetized that whole thing but yeah like he was there Anthony Anderson the actor was there, there was so many people that were there it was unbelievable but yeah continue with what you were saying well so one of the real driving forces of the podcast is initiative being able to take charge of your own destiny figuring out how where when why that must be done. Mm-hmm. So for people that are interested in not only getting into sports journalism, whatever they want to get into, this lesson is very applicable, definite teachable moment. So how did you make this happen for yourself? wasn't just one thing that I did, to be honest. I mean, in high school, there was no, we didn't have any kind of organization or club, you might say, that really covered this area of um, just like uh, of that career in terms of journalism, in terms of broadcasting, just even like, even like just recording like games that we had football, basketball, anything like that. We didn't have any club that represented um, people that had that interest. So my freshman year of high school, I brought a proposal to the principal and I said to him, listen, we need to have a club like this because I want to have some kind of experience with working with a camera, with just, just something I need to, I need to have some kind of base knowledge going into college of being able to work with that kind of technology, using a soundboard and just being able to again, have that base knowledge. So I took the initiative, brought the proposal proposal to my principal, excuse me. And he signed off on it. And the club is still running today for my four years that I was there. I was the president of the club and we ended up, you know, recruiting members year by year. We started off obviously very, very small because it was a new club, but we've grown and grown and grown. And, you know, I have my, my brothers goes to the same school as I, as I do right now. He's a freshman. He, you know, kind of keeps me updated on the club and like, lets me know if it's still running smoothly, all that kind of stuff. He's not in it, but he knows like what's going on with it. Cause he has friends that are in the club. Um, but again, I, it's just taking that initiative. You want to, if, if, if your school doesn't have a club, if you want to be represented in a, in a larger light, you have to take the initiative and push, pu- push yourself to, to get what you want. And then, you know, going into college after high school, I joined 
organizations at my school, uh, you know, Q30 TV, which is our, which was our school television network. They have a bunch of, they have a sports department, a few sports shows. They have a show called Bobcat Breakdown. It's like a first take kind of style show. Sports Pause, which is more of like a sports center show, but it gears around Quinnipiac sports. And I've appeared on those shows multiple times. And that was a great experience for me. Like, again, taking the initiative to just gain more experience. And it, it is like real world experience. You're working in a, te- a television setting, not obviously in like, you know, like an ESPN level uh, setting, but the highest setting that I could possibly achieve at school. I, I took initiative, joined that. I have my own sports podcast at school that we do. And, you know, we, even when we're not at school, me and my co-host, we still uh, post it to Spotify. We record over Zoom um, and we just... It's just doing things like that, putting yourself in those positions, joining organizations, making sure you get as much experience as possible. You know, almost even if you're at home and you're not a part of a club, you could even put on old highlights of a game, turn the volume off. Like, let's say you want to put on like an old, let's say college basketball, March Madness is coming up. Let's say you want to put on an old final four game. Let's say bail up, you know, Baylor versus Houston from the, the last March Madness tournament, turn the volume off. And if you're at home, play the highlights and just, Practice broadcasting. Just do do play the play a clip of the game if you want to do the entire whatever you want to do. Just do things like that that show initiative. You're taking the time to better your craft. Practice. Do things like that to make yourself better. And I, you know, again, it wasn't one thing that really got me here to the Super Bowl. It was a culmination of a lot of things. And it, you know, it, a large part of it too is just having connections. You know, that that's a huge thing in this industry because you could you could be the best broadcaster in the world, but if you have no connections, it'll be very difficult for you to get into this industry. I will say that just to you know be blunt. But again, if you have the initiative, have the passion and have the drive and the want and the will to really, really do whatever it is, whether it's sports journalism, whether it's anything else in your life, it will eventually work out for you. And I can say that now being 19 with what's already happened here in LA, what I've done at school. Again, it's been amazing. So if that's if my advice has to be for that, just initiative, make sure you have the passion and go get it. Absolutely. Last question for you. So you've already covered the Super Bowl. Yeah. What would be the absolute zenith for you? What would be the pinnacle? Uh, I don't necessarily want to credit LeVar Ball, but it was the first time I heard this aloud, the idea of speaking it into existence. Yeah. What would be your version of a pinnacle in terms of uh, sports journalism? Yeah. So, I mean, and when we say what I just want to clarify for listeners, so they don't think that I, I, I didn't cover the Super Bowl specifically, like the game itself. Cause I, I told, I said this to a lot of people and they all thought that I was going to be at the game and I had to clarify, be like, wait, 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 no, no, no. I'm not going to be at the game. I was covering like, I was covering the Super Bowl. Yes. But it was during press week, which again, is still, it was still a crazy experience for me, but I didn't actually get to cover the game. So the pinnacle probably for me would be one of two things. Cause it's so hard to pick between these two. It would either be in some capacity, whether it's broadcasting the game, whether it's reporting on it, whether being able to interview the players like post game, or even like whether it being working at ESPN and talking about the games after it would either be covering the Super Bowl in some, like covering the actual game itself in some aspect or covering the NBA finals, because those are two, I think those are the two, I guess, besides the March Madness tournament, those are the two biggest sporting events in, in the U S I would have to say. So of, 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 of everything that we, I could cover in sports in any capacity in terms of journalism, those would be the two things that I would want to cover. It would be either 
the Super Bowl or the NBA Finals in some capacity. Again, whether broadcasting, whether uh, you know sideline reporting, anything that is will be the pinnacle for me, in my opinion. And probably it would have to include LeBron James and maybe even Bronny James. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably because LeBron is my favorite player, and I think that it is. Um, Again, obviously, by the time LeBron's career is over, I might, I probably won't be at that point yet. Obviously, would it would it be incredible if I was a hundred percent, definitely. But I think more so, I think for uh, for football to go to that, if the Packers were in the Super Bowl, because I'm a huge Packers fan, if the Packers were in the Super Bowl and I got to cover that in some capacity, that would be just the ultimate ult- ultimate height, I guess, of my career in sports journalism. Yeah, tremendous. So we want, again, one of the real takeaways, teachable aspects of the program is this notion that no matter your lot in life, your set of circumstances, if you put all of yourself into a task, you can achieve it. Be it you are born in 1809, 20 miles outside of France, and you go blind at the age of three, Uh, be it you're born in Georgia and you go blind at a tender age and you grow up to be one of the greatest music icons in the history of the world, or you grow up to be one of the foremost experts in the art of card tricks and magic. I wasn't someone who grew up, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster, as I mentioned a couple episodes ago. And here I am doing a podcast dealing with, in large part, blindness. Not something that I asked for, not something that I was interested in initially, but we do the best that we can in life and we show initiative and drive and make the most out of this time. So turning our attention from our dear co-host Santino into the next segment, respect and representation in the media. We're going to be talking about a couple of items today. Santino, you want to tell our listeners about them? Yeah. So we have uh, for the first thing I think we're going to talk about is the novel All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. And it really uh, tells the story of two teenagers who are living in the World War II era. And one of the girls, she is blind. She They both live in France. One of them is blind and her father um, is Daniel LeBlanc, who he works as a, as a locksmith um, in the Museum of Natural History. And obviously, as a young girl, the, the, the girl's name is Mary, Mary Lore, I believe it is. Um, she goes blind as a, as a young girl. And the, real, the main story, I think, is that her father kind of teaches her to navigate the neighborhood um, independently by building her a scale model, model of the neighborhood, which is really incredible. That Again, you take that, uh, obviously, you take that time to help your daughter, but I think that's a great story that he, he took that time, literally built her a scale model to help her navigate by herself. Um, you know, and, and when she turns 12 years old, the threat of a German occu- occupation of Paris goes too great to ignore. And Mary Lohr and her father, Daniel, flee from Paris to St. Malo, and they move in with their great uncle. And from there, the story just kind of continues. So, John, if you want to kind of, you know, touch on your thoughts on the book and what you thought about the story, but that was kind of, the, you know, a little bit of a synopsis of what the story was. Right. So in the book, we are presented with contrasting stories. We're presented with two protagonists on the opposite ends of your proverbial spectrum. You have Marie Lore and you have uh, 
Weimar, Weimar, I believe it. Yeah, I believe that's what her name is. Again, yeah. pronunciation again. Yeah. They, they live in Paris, so the names are going to be more French, so it will be kind of hard to pronounce. But we don't mean any offense, right? Uh, so, <laughs> so the young German gentleman is extremely intelligent. Shows a knack for being able to fix disrepaired radios. Unfortunately, he finds himself a victim of circumstance and is forced to serve in the SS, while at the same time, Marie Lore begins utilizing her uncle's sort of primitive radio broadcast system to read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne over the air. And it's while listening on one of the radios he's asked to destroy on behalf of the SS, that Weimar really connects with the reader, with Marie Lore, who he has no idea is this young blind girl residing in Paris. And while we are presented with these two distinctly different types of stories, by the end of it, no, uh, no real spoilers here, but by the end of it, we are able to see that Marie Lore has had advantages that Weimar hasn't. And one of their stories culminates in as dramatic a fashion as possible, while the other is able to lead a long, fruitful existence. So you would think that the young blind girl living in war-torn France is the disadvantaged one, but because of the way in which she was raised, her particular skill set, and just the fortunes of the era, she's able to thrive. While Weimar, who has all the talent in the world, again, a knack for fixing these radios, because he gets swept up in the awfulness of the Second World War, his fate is drastically different than that of Marie Lore. Now, I found it interesting in doing some research about the book. Now, I read this book um, a number of years ago. Again, it was the recipient of the 2015 Pulitzer Prize. It sold upwards of 10 million copies. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for 150 weeks. Three years on a list of 15 books is impressive any way you slice it. But in reading accounts of Anthony Doerr and how he came up with the story, I found it fascinating, just, just kind of the origin. So here's what happened. He was on public transit. He was riding the train, uh, which stopped at, I believe, Penn Station. And he noticed a gentleman who had dropped his iPhone, who was sitting to his right. He dropped his iPhone, and this guy was really making a scene, was just not happy about it, obviously complaining and turning his problem into that of everyone else on the train. And it was in this moment that Anthony Doerr thought to himself, okay, yes, he dropped the phone, but does he not get how amazing it is that you would have a device like that phone in the first place by which you could essentially surf the internet, send emails, it's an all-in-one device for anything that you sort of want to do in life and it fits in your pocket. And rather than appreciate how amazing it is that we've arrived at a time in human existence where that can exist, 
he chose uh, to go the other way and again, turn his problem into a problem shared by everyone else on the train. He failed to see the proverbial light, if you will, the light that was contained inside that cell phone. Just like Marie Lore, as she would be viewed by others, as this person has no shot. They're a blind girl um, in Nazi-occupied France. They're, yeah. they're, you know, not to be crude, but they're going to be one of the first ones to go. Yeah. And yet, because of her cunning, her education, it definitely wasn't all hands on deck uh, approach with um, what she learned from her father and from her uncle. Because of all that, she was able to turn what objectively would be a really dire situation into something workable that she could emerge from hat in hand thriving. I like though how they kind of switched it up almost like, and they, they like, cause again, like you said, people's perspectives would coming into this would go, okay, like you said, a blind girl living in a war torn country of, of France okay, yeah, she's going to go for sure. She's not, you know what I mean? She's not going to be able, again, like you said, to persevere through this and survive, essentially. They kind of flip it, they flip it on you. And the one that you would expect, again, like you said, for one to possibly be one of the first to go, again, is the one that thrives. I love how the book does that and how Dor um, does that. And he, again, takes the perspective that you, that most people would come in with and he flips it on your head and he almost goes in the reverse route. So that was very interesting to me. But again, continue with what you were saying. So I find it interesting that here you have an American author. You have Anthony Doerr, yeah, who's in his 40s. He's from Cleveland, no background in blindness. He now resides in Boise, Idaho. And in reading interviews, I, there's a great one that you can find on the internet that he did with The Guardian upon the publication of his most recent novel, where he proclaims that rather than that old adage of write what you know, he veers in the opposite direction. He tries to write what he doesn't know, but he takes the time and the painstaking effort to meticulously do all of this research. So again, he's not someone who was born in Europe, born in the 1910s, 1920s. He has no real personal connection to the events unfolding in the novel. It's all done based upon his meticulous research and his drive to tell a particular story. So how do we feel about the depiction of the blind? Because that is sort of our purview on this podcast is how did they handle the blindness aspect of things? So specifically with the uh, Marie Lore character, how do you feel that the blindness was rendered on the page and uh, how it was handled by Anthony Doerr? I think, again, coming from the perspective, like you said, of Anthony Doerr, not really, he, he's not coming from a world where he's experienced blindness firsthand or even really at all. He didn't, he came into this writing this novel, like you said, he's writing about what he doesn't know. He doesn't really know about blindness. So I think from that perspective, he did a really good job of portraying it, considering the fact, again, that he didn't really, again, have any firsthand experience. Um, so I think the book did, 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 did a really good job. What I do um, find different in this book than when we've analyzed movies and shows in the first two episodes, specifically um, in, the, in the dark, I think that the difference between that show, and, uh, that show and this book is that Murphy, the main protagonist in, in the dark, is like we say, she, she has vices, she has flaws, same as Colonel Frank Slade in Send the Son of a Woman. 
in this book, I feel like Mary Lore, obviously she has the obstacle of being blind, but I don't think they port, uh, she's portrayed in the same way as those other characters in terms of the fact that they don't really, I think, focus on like her external flaws and vices as much as they do in those shows and movies, at least in my point of view. However, I do think, again, that uh, Anthony Doerr does a great job of depicting blindness and the struggles and how she had to persevere and be able to overcome that and use that scale model that her dad made. And she was able to essentially survive that war-torn country of France. But I did think he did a good job of it. So to aspiring authors or those seeking to tell the stories of visually impaired characters, do your research. It's not that hard. It's been done before and you can do it too so that you don't wind up scripting out a movie that features a character, among other things, deciding to brush his teeth with a lobster because he can't see. You can do more research. We can do better than that. With this idea of the dark that keeps popping up yeah. in our conversations, I also thought it would be a great idea to discuss another classic kind of iconic movie that deals with many of the themes that we talk about on the show. Mm -hmm. That is uh, Wait Until Dark, the classic 1967 film from, well, it was originally a stage play written by uh, Frederick Knott in 1966, uh, but the film version is the more popular version known to the masses. Uh, in it, Audrey Hepburn portrays uh, Susie, a blind woman living in an apartment in Manhattan who finds herself entangled in this Hitchcockian web of misidentity and a doll containing drugs that is much coveted by a band of thieving hooligans. What did you think of Wait Until Dark, Santino? Um, I thought it was an interesting movie. I did think that, you know, the the storyline of, um, you know, the 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 thugs that uh, um, Hendrix, you know, he leaves for business and the <clears throat> crooks make their move and they find his blind wife, Susie, like you said, played by Audrey Hepburn. And they're alone in the they're alone in the uh, apartment, and then like the, this like life threatening game kind of begins between Susie and the thugs, and I found that kind of interesting. But I want to get your thoughts on the movie, just what you thought again, how it represented blindness as a whole, and if you could just dive you know more into it, give us like a kind of like an analysis of what you thought, and just your thoughts again in general. Sure. Well, not that there's any one size fits all in terms of a nightmare, but from the standpoint of somebody that can't see, the idea of a home invasion whereby the perpetrators were not only seeking to do you bodily harm, but come inside and turn your entire world into something unrecognizable. Uh, this one's up there in terms of just a frightening yeah. concept uh, that potentially might uh, happen. In terms of its depiction with the Susie character, She's someone who has gone blind rather recently. Uh, she was not born without sight. Uh, she suffered vision loss as a result of a car accident, I believe. And so we find the Susie character residing with her husband in this apartment in uptown Manhattan, it looks like. And she is doing her best to reestablish some autonomy, some sense of agency 
to be able to navigate her way around the apartment before being able to go out into the world and do that effectively. She is just sort of at some of the more beginning stages of figuring out how to really live and thrive with a visual impairment. So it's perfectly natural that a person in that situation would be sort of the ideal character that you would want to scare if you are trying to absolutely terrorize your audience. And this story is widely recognized as one of the greatest examples of terror ever depicted on screen. In particular, the climax of the film, which I don't want to spoil things. This is a movie that's like 60 years old, but still I feel the need to avoid spoiling things for our <laughs> listeners. We are dealing with a situation where Susie actually turns the tables on the crooks, including, and I found this funny, I've seen the movie a couple times, but it occurred to me this time, she keeps saying Mr. Rote over, like, Mr. Rote, Mr. Rote, just in such a formal way, as yeah. though she were talking about a nuclear physicist or <laughs> a Nobel laureate. Yep. In any event, she actually, by turning off the lights, by unplugging the refrigerator, is able to turn the tables on that dastardly Mr. Rote. So that this is not, because the fear here from our purview is we don't want this character to be a one note personification. We would like this character to have different dimensions and elements to her personality and things that she's able to achieve. We don't want to be in the one note business and we don't want to be in the business of her blindness is a plot device here. It's part of the story. It's not just, Hey, ah, look at this. And now look at that. Did you feel the movie did a good job of that though? Just not using it as a plot device, but kind of like used it within the story and did it like, did, did the movie itself do a good job of depicting blindness in your eyes? It did because again, it's that first year, that first year and a half, two years upon your diagnosis, or in this case, uh, the tragic accident mm -hmm. that prevents you from being able to see uh, at your full capacity. So in the context of that, yes, I do believe that Audrey Hepburn's portrayal of Susie is pretty spot on. Now, it's not as effectively done as it is with the Marie Lore character in yeah. All the Light We Cannot See. I'd agree with that, yeah. It's not, and it's an hour and you know 40 minute movie or play depending on the version that you saw. But for what it sets out to achieve, for the time too, we also, a lot of times when people have discussions, they fail to factor in the context. So we're dealing with 1966, 1967. And so for the time and the place and the era, yeah, I think it is a nicely rendered depiction of a blind character. And it's interesting to me that that story, Wait Until Dark, has managed to find additional lives on the stage. It's been performed at the Geffen Playhouse here in Los Angeles over in Westwood. And it was revived like 20 years ago where, if you can believe this, Quentin Tarantino actually played Mr. Rote and Marissa Tomei played Susie. So it's a story that has been able to find favor with audiences and performers for generations now. And I believe it will continue to find favor going forward. Uh, on Okay, even though I've seen the movie uh, a number of times, 
there's one thing I'm, I'm curious about, Santino, that yeah. I, I think you can answer. So there's said to be heroin inside the doll. Yeah. And these uh, crooks are, they're Nothing. sparing no expense yeah. in trying to obtain this doll. Well, you don't have to be an expert on the drug market to know that you would need a massive, massive, massive quantity of heroin to be able to turn the kind of profit that we're led to believe that these crooks feel like it's going to happen for them. Mm -hmm. How big is the doll? How much heroin could possibly be inside the doll? I don't think it could have been that. Like, I mean, in my opinion, I really don't think it could have been that much. So I feel like they're, they, listen, they were being very persistent. And like you said, they were stopping at nothing to get this doll. So people are murdered. That's what I'm saying. I know yeah. that's what I'm saying. I like, I just, yeah, I don't, I really like in terms of this, that, that storyline though, of them, like, oh my God, like we have to get this doll. I feel like not that it was unrealistic, but it was a little like, okay, well, I, I, you know, I get it. It's like for the plot, it's for the story. Like that's like, that's kind of like the whole point, but at the same time, I really don't think there was, again, like you said, there would have had to have been a lot of heroin for that. Like for it, you to probably have, would have needed hundreds. Oh yeah. Like, and, and yeah, and it would have, it again. And because of the size of it, like you said, yeah, it, it didn't, it, it, it again, I, I don't want to use the word realistic, but it didn't seem realistic for them to think that, Oh, acquiring this doll. Like, yep. That's what's going to, you know what I mean? That's what's going to change our lives. Like that kind of thing. It wasn't. Yeah. It, that, that part to me was a little bit unrealistic. I don't know if you had thoughts on it, but it just, yeah, to me, it didn't, again, like you said, the doll was too small. There wasn't, there was definitely not a lot that much heroin in it. So yeah, that, that to me was a little bit, kind of, that was kind of weird. Well, it's like, uh, Okay, so confession. I love bad horror movies. I love the <laughs> Leprechaun series in general. Yeah. Now, in the Leprechaun series, he is always questing for his pot of gold, because of course, as it's been taken by somebody, there are like eight of these movies. And it's always interesting to me that you have ostensibly this pot of gold that's like thousands and thousands of years old and from maybe a defunct civilization, who knows where it's actually from and who could appraise it and how you could get value for it. But whenever somebody finds the gold in one of the Leprechaun movies, the very next scene is kind of a montage of them being able to spend it. And I always think, where did you fence this gold? Like, <laughs> where were you able to trade in like this archaic pot of gold for what, like twenty million dollars? The, the, like, the realistic, the, the realisticness of it, like of being like, okay, like how, like how, 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 how real can this be? Like how practical is this? Like that kind of thing. Like that, that part of your brain kind of comes into yeah. play, and it's like, well, I don't know about that. So from yeah. yeah, so from that perspective, watching Wait Until Dark, I am thinking. Okay, Susie, like, hmm, Susie, come on, like, put it together, put, put it together, put it together. But then it's really hard to come down on her because everyone's looking for this doll, this doll. Well, what could really be inside the doll that's so important that people would be willing to kill for it? Well, if we are to take Anthony Doerr into consideration, he does a great job with a very similar situation in All the Light We Cannot See with a mythical sort of diamond from the Museum of Natural History and people are looking for it and that gives another dimension to uh to, to that story but very good discussion I think about uh 
Yeah, definitely. And I think, again, we, we're going to be doing this every week, every week where we have, you know, one movie, a book, TV show, whatever it may be, something within the you know media. And we're going to look at it every week and analyze it and just see how does it represent blind people? Is it, you know, almost like, is it respectful? Does it do a good job? Does it not? So you'll see us do this every single week. We'll move on to our final segment of the show, Connecting the Dots, where John is going to once again give us, you know, a, a firsthand account a story about his experiences, you know, while having to deal with retinitis pigmentosa. So John, what is your story for us today? Well, tying it into the inductee into this week's Handprints Hall of Fame, I wanted to tell our wonderful audience about learning Braille. So it was a couple of years ago that I was fortunate enough to attend a specialized school, the Hatland Center uh, for the Blind. This is in Northern California. And one of the things amongst uh, a cornucopia of others that students have the ability to learn is Braille. Now, in the actual world, in the year of our Lord, 2022, you can really get by without being able to see just through audiobooks and the need to learn Braille isn't as dire as it was uh, in prior generations, just because of the advent of modern technology and its ability to assist people dealing with visual conditions. However, I'm someone that always wanted to learn a foreign language, and this was it. I tried to learn Italian. Well, when I tried to learn Italian as a, a younger person, it amounted to me buying Rosetta Stone and being unable to properly install, uh, install the like, CD-ROM. Yeah. Very, very pathetic on my part. So when the task of learning Braille was presented to me, I jumped at the opportunity. Now, I'm not someone who was born without eyesight. Uh, it has gone as I have aged. Uh, I did used to be able to drive when I was younger. I had to stop in my early 20s. Anyway, a number of things have changed. So I'm not somebody who came to blindness as my first life experience. And for those in that kind of situation, traditionally learning Braille is more difficult. When it's first taught to students at a young age, it's typically more effective. But I was determined and it took me with three lessons a week for roughly 45 minutes each lesson, about seven months to, to learn the whole thing. And first of all, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be at all. When I was in graduate school at St. Mary's College of California in Moraga, I wrote two books. Um, and by writing, I mean, I dictated them to another human being. I was unable to even take the bus from campus to the local pavilions. So after graduating, I was sort of terrified of what was to come. Um, I didn't know about all the assistive technology that existed in the world. I needed some help, truly. And it was through the urging of my Department of Rehabilitation counselor that I found out about this wonderful place, the Hatland Center for the Blind in Northern California, where, again, they taught me how to cook, um, how to fold and label clothing, uh, how to be able to use the technology available to better my own circumstances, how to independently get to and from 
how to do all of these things that I, these were not taught to me as a kid and I had no conception that I would one day have to learn all this stuff. But it was because of the wonderful people at the Hatland Center uh, that I was able to conquer all of those respective feats, notably among them, Braille. So for those that have not really wrapped their head around what Braille actually is, it's six dots. If you think about a pair of traffic lights, you have at the top, well, I don't even remember actually at the top, is it green, uh, yellow, red? In any event, you have the traffic light. So think of two traffic lights that are side by side, each one of them accounting for a different space. And so it's with different combinations of how those spaces are filled that the alphabet exists. So if you have the first spot, it's A. If you have one, two going downward, that's B, mm -hmm. one, three. And so each different area of the six possible and combination that can be utilized within that framework, that is how the alphabet is constructed. So at first you have to learn the alphabet. Secondarily, you learn different contractions because as Lewis Braille was to find out, much like Valentin before him, uh, his books could get really, really heavy and really, really long. So to condense things, a whole series of contractions and ways to simplify sentences and words was developed. So instead of writing out each individual letter every time, after you get the hang of it and get things going, you learn that there's a certain combination for AR, uh, ER, the word the, the word and, then these are all meant to conserve space so that you're not carrying stacks and stacks of pages that amount to thousands in totality. The most difficult aspect of Braille to me was probably the punctuation. All the things uh, that you would see on a secondary keyboard, so the, the little symbols, um, your hashtags, your at symbols, punctuation, all of that type of stuff is fairly difficult to really get comfortable with using. But again, as with so many things, it's practice, practice, practice that really helps. And thanks to the Hatland Center who provided me with a typewriter, what I would do is in my off hours, I'd sit at uh, my countertop with a typewriter and I would just write out essays basically. And through just hours and hours of writing on the Braille typewriter, I did finally uh, become confident in my ability to write Braille um, and to read it. Better at writing it than reading it for sure. But something that I thought initially when I got to the Hatland Center, I, I this is going to be the hardest out of everything I learned here. This is easily going to be the hardest. And because of the wonderful staff and capable instructors, uh, I was able to do it. And you know what? You can do it too. Yeah, I think that you know, that, that, that story, again, like the ones you've given in the last two episodes, extremely inspiring. I wanted to ask you real quick, you know, when, again, when you had to go through that process of trying to learn Braille and trying to really make this adjustment, what, I know you said like, you know, learning punctuation was one of the hardest things about the Braille alphabet in general, but mentally, what was the hardest 
I guess, you know, uh, the, the hardest part about having to make this adjustment and, you know, when did you realize like, all right, I really need to buckle down and kind of just really, really put my head down and just drive and make sure that I can really, really not necessarily master the Braille alphabet, but learn it well enough to, to, um, to be able to read and write like you can now at this point. Well, it was after uh, graduate school. So I thought that not that I could circumvent the process, but as is the case with so many, I thought that I could kind of cut a little bit. I could cut in line a tad. So I had at St. Mary's a wonderful assistant who helped me to be able to write the two books that I penned while on campus, but I still was kind of chugging along. And again, I graduated terrified that I wouldn't be able to do that going forward. So it was at that point that I was like, okay, there's just no way around it now. I, there, there is no shortcut. I have to put in the time. I have to make a concerted effort on all of these fronts, unless I want to be trapped, isolated in a room by myself for years and years. I have to figure out how to make this a workable situation and a life that I can navigate. But it it took a while. It, yeah. The, and yeah, I mean, and the whole thing, um, the process of acceptance and, and all that, it's different for, for everybody. But certainly there were a lot of people along the way who helped me out, uh, whether it was just lending a kind ear so that I could vent uh, or whether it was my department of rehabilitation counselor who told me about the Hatland Center, told me, this is probably what you're looking for. This yeah. is how you can keep on writing in the future without literally having to hire someone uh, to sit next to you so that you could dictate to them. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's what something you said in there that I think is very important for people, the listeners just to understand is having people in your corner, having the right group of people around you, having people who will motivate you, be there to listen to you, just just support you in whatever you're trying to do. I think that's really, really important because they, you know, the, the people you have around you can be the difference between success and failure, in my opinion, because if you have people around you that are, you know, not necessarily trying to put you down, but yes, trying to put you down, not supporting you, not really caring about, you know, what you're going through, what's going on in your life. I think that's very important to have in whatever situation you're going through and whatever you're trying to do in your life. My other um, overarching point again, I mean, it's the overarching point of the podcast. John and I have mentioned it on multiple occasions again, but you hear the story from John and the biggest thing to take away is again, he did it. You can do it. Whatever you're trying to achieve, you can achieve it despite whatever obstacles you're facing. You need to be able to have that strong mindset come from a place of, all right, you know what? Maybe this isn't the way I wanted it to happen. Maybe this isn't what I was expecting. This wasn't necessarily what I even wanted to happen, but John figured out a way to persevere, to adapt, to adjust to his situation and do the best that he possibly could in, in that circumstance. So that's the thing that at least I take away from the story and something that if I'm taking it away, I feel like all listeners should take that away from the story that John told. Anything else you want to close out with? Yeah, I, it's something I, I failed to mention because I, I want to kind of end, yes, on an inspirational note, but also with a dash of humor yeah. uh, spiced into things. So in All the Light We Cannot See, Marie Lore is reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea on something of a loop. Like she is just, she keeps reading the, that was the scariest thing about the book to me. Yeah. Was, oh my God, if I had to read one book for the rest of my life, wow. 
like that that honestly <laughs> was a vision of the future that i could not wrap my head around and you were like yep that's that way. Yeah, oh, you don't want to have my to. goodness <laughs> without audible like yeah I, I can read braille and and i could do it but without like an audible.com um your audiobooks just the idea of being able to literally only read one book or only having one book on you <laughs> whoo yeah, scary, you scary stuff. Sam, can't, you know? can't fathom that 100%. Uh, I think that's going to wrap it up for our third episode of Visionaries. Thank you guys for listening once again. Um, if you want to do us a favor, go follow our Instagram at visionaries underscore podcast. We'll be posting announcements of every episode that we post on our Spotify. You can also find our Spotify link in the bio of our Instagram page. And if you have any comments, any suggestions, anything you want to you know shoot at us let us know please dm us again at visionaries underscore podcast john anything you want to finish off by saying nope just wanted to thank everyone for their continued support for listening to the program until next time on behalf i am your humble correspondent and host my name is john steinberg joined alongside by my co-host santino maoni have a good night guys thank you